We're thankful, Lord, for your providence and your sovereignty. We keep coming back to those things. But when, but when our um, world just goes crazy, we need to be reminded. We're thankful that um, that that in spite of of the events of life, when they don't make sense, you're still in control. We, we don't understand all that. We, we, don't, uh, we don't easily get that because we would often think, well, if you're in control, why would you not just stop things like this? But I'm reminded of Deuteronomy 29.29 that talks about the secret things. You have purposes and you have plans that we know nothing about, nor if they were explained to us, could we conceive or could we understand. But we do know this. We know that Psalm 119.68 says, the Lord is good and does good. Is there evil? There's evil. But you oversee evil. You're bigger than evil. You actually use evil for the good of your people and for your own glory. That's how the scripture presents it. So we don't, we don't try to cut you down to size and we don't try to uh, make you like us. We don't try to limit you or your power so that we can understand you and explain you uh, easily to other people. We just take the scriptures for what they say. And there are some things in there that throw us sometimes. Uh, you are the God who heals and you are the God who wounds. Well, we don't, we don't get that. We also know, Lord, that when something happens like happened uh, at that campus, uh, you are not the cause of it. It's very clear from scripture what the cause is. But we often wonder, how can any good come out of this? But Lord, that's what you do. You, you, you bring good. You work strangely. And oftentimes, people's worlds, when they're secure and when they are uh, steady and when they're predictable and when they're comfortable, uh, it's very easy for us to think that we have no need for you. And uh, we've all been shaken and deeply sorrowful. But we're thankful for the scriptures and we're thankful for the word of God and we're thankful for what you say to us in the scriptures that, uh, that tell us about what's really true in life. So tonight, as we get into James 4, Sustain us with truth. Help us to stand on your word. Uh, thank you for giving us this, the straight scoop. Uh, we, we really need to hear it and be reminded. Not, not of what people think, but of what is true. Give us open hearts and open minds. We pray for those that are struggling. We pray for those that are hurting. We pray for those that are deeply afflicted that you would encourage them. 
that you would sustain them. That you would remind them that the eye of the Lord is upon those who fear him. We commit ourselves to you. We ask that your spirit would lead us, would teach us, would apply the word, teach heart. That would be our prayer tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, let's go right to James 4. <clears throat> We've said this, if you've been with us, this guy's practical. This guy, uh, this guy lays it out. He moves from subject to subject. Uh, doesn't, um, doesn't gloss it over. Just puts it on the table. That's what this guy does, James. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, he says this, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts and shootings among you? Now, that's not what it says, but it certainly would apply. Would it not? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts? For those that would be listening later on a CD, the date today is, is it not April 18th? I had to check my watch and couldn't remember if I changed it over or not, but it's April 18th. And uh, Was it yesterday or the day before? It was the 16th that the shooting occurred at Virginia Tech. So for the last couple of days, of course, talk radio and the televisions, cable news and all that stuff is just perpetual and Everyone's talking about it. It's just like after Columbine. And, and so most shows, they get, someone's interviewing somebody, and they get at least two people, one from each side, uh, if it's Fox. If it's CNN, it's five from one side and one on the other. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Probably because it's true. Um, but I have no bias either way. I, I just want you to know that. And they talk about it. How could this have happened? What, what do we need to do? What, what, what is the answer? What, what, hot, hot, bleep, what does James say? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Now, he just doesn't ask the question. He answers the question. That's the great thing about the Word of God. A lot of people are asking questions. Very few can answer questions. Uh, what, what we need is truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. That's, that's what we need. We don't need spin. We don't need hype. We don't need um, political correctness. Don't you get tired of that? Just, just want to vomit. It's nauseating. What is the source the source of quarrels and conflicts among you is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. Well, there it is. Right there. Just answer the whole thing for us. So, so why, is, why is there... Now, he's talking to believers here. We got to say that. He's talking to believers. He's talking um, to Christians uh, who have who have quarrels and who have conflicts. It, it happens in homes. It happens in marriages. It happens in churches. 
I went to seminary and um, uh, remember taking church history. And I wasn't looking forward to church history. Loved it. Absolutely fascinating. Actually took a course one time, uh, an entire semester, on Baptist history. It was, under, it was under American church history and the place of Baptist. The whole thing was on Baptist church history. And I thought to myself, after I took the course, they had to call that course Baptist Church Splits. Because that's basically what it was about. Now, it's just not the Baptists that split. I mean, they're really good at it. But there are a lot of other groups that are just as gifted. Why? Well, because of our hearts. You don't have to just be reading Baptist history, you're Methodist, Presbyterian, whatever you want to read. Churches... Churches are full of people. And when you get people, you're going to have, what are you going to have? You're going to have quarrels, and you're going to have conflicts. And sometimes churches split. Now, God oversees all that. What is interesting is when you, when you study church history, is often there'd be a big church, and they'd have a big split. And then what would happen is you'd look 40 years down the line, and you'd see how God in his sovereignty took that split and took this group and took that group, and one was here, one was here, and used both of them, and they moved on. And now, sometimes there's bad blood, but it's because we're people. It, we're, we're, ap- we're just people, and we're screwed up. We're just all screwed up. We're, I'm not talking about the guy next to you. Now, you know he's screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, just look at it. (laughs) He's screwed up and you're screwed up. We're all screwed up. Because it says here, is not, see, see, what is the source? Not only of quarrels and conflicts among Christians, but what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among non-Christians? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts uh, among, among nations? Why do we have wars? Well, because, well, you've got to get to the source. You've got to get to the root of the issue. Why is it that if you go to a peace march and you hold up a sign that supports the military, if you're by yourself, they'll beat the crud out of you? Why is that? Well, because we got something going on in our hearts. We want to get to the source. We want to get to the source issue. We're already there in James 1, in chapter 1 and verse 4. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? There are some things. What James is going to do here is that James is going to point out some things that are wrong. Wrong. Um, Now, it's really not acceptable anymore to say that anything's wrong. But some things are wrong. What James is going to say here in chapter 4, verse 1, will not be taught at the local university. They have a different take on all this. It's, it's, um, there's just great sadness and profound sadness when, when these shootings occur um, I, I actually, this was probably four, five, six months ago. It, they've gotten to be so 
normative. But it was five, six months ago, there was a shooting at a school and two kids were shot. It didn't make the front page. It was back on page four. I was in an airport somewhere. And I thought, now that's really interesting. I mean, 10 years ago, it would have been on page one. See, now to, make, now to get to page one with a school shooting, it's got to be over 30 people. You've you got to break the record because it's become such a normal part of our culture and such a normal part of our society. Uh, great sadness, just your hearts go out to, and you see these, these kids just in a state of shock, and you can't even imagine the families. I, I read today that the kid who did this, his, his parents have been checked into a hospital. You can imagine just the uh, agony. Their lives will never be the same let alone the, the, the people who were shot. But, but I have to tell you, I, as I, I didn't see all of that service. I, I just saw glimpses of it. And, and I got to tell you something. Here are people in, here are young people in absolute incredible pain and shock and grief. Completely confused. The world's been turned upside down. And I thought, now this is going to be real interesting. Because this service is going to be taking place at a secular university. And what's always interesting to me is what morally bankrupt people have to say to comfort those whose lives are falling apart. That may seem pretty strong to you. But if, if, if there is any place consistently in our culture that has lost its mind, it's a secular university campus. The foolishness and the nonsense is beyond belief beyond belief. So what do you do? What do you do when some guy shows up and starts spraying people with bullets? Now, question is, how do you comfort people? You say, I'm not following you. Why? Well, of course they're going to comfort them. Well, yeah, they're going to try and comfort them. But in order to comfort them, they're going to have to depart from everything they teach on a normal day. Are you following me at all? Um, you'd never hear James 4, verse 1, taught anymore at a university, a public university. Now, I can, how many of you guys are old enough to remember in a public school when they would open up the Bible and read it? Why don't you raise your hands? Yeah. As, as best I can see, the guys raising their hands are over 40, basically. And I'm being generous. <laughs> Sorry, guys. And it makes sense because, you see, it's been about 40 years since you could do that. Because certain things happened. I, I looked up this morning the Humanist Manifesto. 
And the Humanist Manifesto came out in 1933. They have they revised it twice since then. But uh, these scientists and scholars, you know, these hotshot academic guys, um, <clears throat> got together and came up with this Humanist Manifesto. It's basically against religion and against Christianity. But they have these tenets. And they say, we therefore affirm the following. First, and, and back then they called themselves religious humanists. They don't even bother to do that anymore. Today it's secular humanists. But it was the 1930s, you see. It was a different world. Here's their first tenet. Religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. I'll tell you why that's interesting. That's what the Bible says about God. There's a concept called the aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y. The aseity of God is God's self-existence. God was not created. God has always been. You ever have one of your kids, little kids, say to you, hey, Daddy, where did God come from? How do you answer that? Well, you know, here's how you answer He didn't come from anywhere. Yeah, yeah, but w- when did he begin? Well, he never began. He never began. He never began. Because he's always been. He's always been. Mm -hmm. But where did he come from? (laughs) I can remember as a kid trying to get my mind around that. I still can't get my mind around it. Where did he come from? So I'd go back as far as my mind could reach. I'd go back and back and back and back and back and back. And it was about ready to explode. And I think, but where did he come from? Because see, we can't that. But that's a basic tenet of Christianity. In John 8, they took up stones to kill Jesus because Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. Not I was, I am. I am the self-existent God who has always been. They hated him for it. But see, these guys couldn't, they, 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 they had to change that. Religious, this is 1933. Religious humanists regard the universe as self existing. Well, the universe isn't self existing. Oh, and they go on and say, and not created. Yeah, but it was created by a self existing God. Well, that's where it was in 1933. And then it, when you follow, when you just follow the um, decline, So where are we today in the university system? Well, here's where we are. Uh, Where we are today is we have reached a point where we call uh, call it postmodernism, and that's taught. Postmodernism is taught absolutely in secular universities. You say, what's what's postmodernism? Basically, all you've got to remember about postmodernism is this. Postmodernism teaches that there is no absolute truth. And they teach that absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. There is no absolute truth. And they don't even get it. The contradiction. So you're telling me, absolutely, there's no absolute truth. That's exactly right. Huh. Huh. And they say it without, without blushing. There is no absolute truth. Why is there absolute truth? No, no, no absolute truth. Well, there is no God. There is no self-existing God. Okay, 
So now think this through with me. And see, this is not any longer just at the university level. This filters down all the way down to the lowest grades. You guys know about National Silence Day? You ever heard about that? National Silence Day is being pushed by a certain group that's backed by the NEA, National Education Association. Um, and basically, uh, National Silence Day, and if I recall, I think it's coming up, where they take, in the public school, they take five minutes of silence as a silent protest against uh, uh, hate speech against those who are gay and lesbian and bisexual and transgendered. That's being pushed in public schools. So see, it's filtering all the way down. Now, we don't like to talk about this because it's kind of depressing. But, but see, when you got that kind of context and you got that kind of worldview, and then these guys get on MSNBC and they get on this and CNN and they're all asking, well, well, well where did this, how could you? How? All right, well, think about it. You raise these kids in a culture. There is no God. Absolutely there's no God. All right, if there's no God, then there's no absolute truth. If there's no absolute truth, then there's no right or wrong. So if there's no right or wrong, and somebody's bullying you, or somebody's bothering you, or someone's hacking you off, well, then why not go get a gun and just start spraying a classroom? Oh, because, by the way, there's no heaven or hell. And what happens is you just go out of existence. Ideas have consequences. And this is where we are. So I have to tell you, as I watch some of that service, I, I, you know, those, those, those young people, they need answers. What they need is truth. They don't need political correctness. They don't need to be told, we're going to make it because we're hokies. What is a hokey? <laughs> I mean, I keep that to myself. <laughs> we're not, I caught the end of this woman's, we're not fearful. Well, then there's something wrong with you. Because how do you know that's not going to happen again tomorrow? And by the way, they called the SWAT team out this morning. What do you mean we're not fearful? Of course, you're petrified if you've got half a brain. Because who's the next nut that believes there's no God? I caught some of you, if you didn't, you may not know this, but apparently this kid overnighted a package. That's what he was doing the two hours between the, uh, the dorms. Did a video thing, apparently, overnight of the package at NBC News they got today. And I happened to see that on the Dredge Report this afternoon at 5.15. So I watched the opening scene. And there's so much stuff there they can't get it all on. But they got enough on to hear this kid speaking against the rich kids and speaking against Christianity. They were able to get that on. Isn't it interesting? So when these kind of things happen, oh, and by the way, all these people that are teaching on a normal day, there is no right or wrong, they're walking around talking about right and wrong. Okay. 
well, I thought there wasn't right or wrong. They're talking about evil. There is no evil. Uh, Paul Johnson in his book, um, which one? I'm sorry? Huh? That was it. I almost said modern times. Thank you. Uh, intellectuals. You know where I'm going, don't you? He, talked about, he talks about the Sorbonne University in Paris. Can't remember if it's the left bank or the right. It's got to be the left bank. It's the left bank. <laughs> Has to be. Has to be the left bank. It's all relative. It doesn't matter which bank. Either bank's fine. Yeah, it's fine. In France, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, anyway, by the way, I, you heard they raised the terror alert in France this week, didn't you? From run to hide? Did you, did you hear that? Just no, no, no charge for that one. But the, the stuff that Rousseau taught and that John Paul Sartre picked up and this existentialism and all. See, ideas have consequences. It's amazing how many dictators who have slaughtered people like Pol Pot took that stuff and really believed it and put it into practice. Ideas have consequences. Now, we could talk about all this stuff all night. Aren't you glad we have truth? Aren't you glad that we have the Word of God? Now, now something i got to throw out here, see, because a lot of us, we, we remember the days when our folks could just send us off to school and everything was fine. Because we got sent off to school and basically the teachers and the administration, they underscored what our mom and dad taught us at home. Now, that's the exception rather than the rule. Now, and you should know that. I'm not saying what you should do, I'm just saying you ought to be aware of it. Uh, the men of Issachar, is that not First Chronicles 12.32? Understood the times and knew what Israel should do. We're living in different times, guys. What is the source? Well, the source, what is the source? And how do we stop these things? Well, we obviously need more gun control. That's what we're... I'm just parodying what I've been hearing. You don't, you don't need more gun control. You need heart control. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? The Bible says that man is basically good. It's not what the Bible says. It's what the culture says. They all say it. Oh, he's basically good. He's not. He's screwed up. The heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? Can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? No. Can a leopard change his spots? No. Then you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. We don't... I almost said it the wrong way. We are not sinners because we sin. Did you know that? So I sin. I, I know you do. But that's not why you're a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. 
When you come out of that womb, you're a sinner. It's called original sin. And, well, we don't like that. But see, the fact of the matter is, when Adam sinned, we, where were you when Adam sinned? You say, I wasn't around. Well, you were in the loins of Adam. You were in Adam. The whole human race was in Adam. And when sin came into the world, everything got broken. So we've got evil hearts. And, and even after we come to know Christ, we are still, we, we still have two natures. And what we have to do is, is starve and put down the old nature. That's why Romans says, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, then you shall live. We have to fight sin. We, we have to fight ourselves. Remember, he's talking to Christians here. Why, why do we have quarrels? Why do we have difficulties? What? Is not the source your pleasures? And the idea here is your rampant pleasures, your excessive pleasures that wage war in your members. The problem, the conflict's in me. I've got, a, I've, got a, I've got two natures. I've got a heart. Now, the Spirit of God lives in me. I've been regenerated. But until I'm glorified and go to be with Christ, there's still going to be a war. And if that's true of believers, how much more so of unbelievers? Then he goes on in verse 2 and describes it more in detail. You lust and do not have. So let's talk about this shooter. He left long notes and these videos and all this kind of stuff. One of the things he's got a problem with is all these rich kids. He's not a rich kid. They've got stuff he doesn't have. They have things he can't have. They've got cars he'll never drive. Da, da, da. He lust is, we often think lust is sexual. Lust is wanting something that someone else has. Lust is a passion that's out of control. There's this deal called the Ten Commandments. Um, you, you know that, don't you? Outlined in Exodus chapter 20. The last commandment says, you shall not, anybody know? Covet. In other words, somebody has something that you want, that's coveting. Basically, the other, you know, you shall not lie. Why would you lie? Well, oftentimes it's coveting. Is at the root of it? Shall not commit adultery. You're coveting somebody else's wife. Coveting is sort of the root thing. Sort of the root issue. Uh, you lust and do not have, catch this, so you commit murder. It, 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 um, we all have the potential to just start shooting. We all have that potential. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Uh, he's just, listen, he's just given the analysis, here's what's going in our heart. This is the root. This is the root of, of, of quarrels, conflict in church, out of church, uh, disagreements, all this stuff. It's, this is what's coming out of the human heart. And when you get two people with the same kind of heart, you're going to have conflict and you're going to have quarrels. So he says, what is the source? The source is wrong hearts. Verse 2, he's saying a wrong heart leads to wrong actions. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. 
And, and as Jesus said, if you look upon a woman and lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. And then there's the yo-yo who says, well, then I ought to go ahead and do it. No, don't do that. Don't do that. You're just going to exacerbate the problem. Now, what's interesting is, because he's talking to believers, the next thing he gets in, so we got, we got, we got wrong hearts, then we got wrong actions. Now, note this next thing. We, get, we have wrong prayers. That's interesting. Prayer. He's talking to Christians. Uh, at the end of two, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. You say, well, I've been asking. All right, look at verse three. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. I cannot tell you how many guys I've heard tell me over the years, well, what I want to do is I want to see God really bless my business. I'd like to be financially independent so I could give all this money to ministry. I mean, I just I think that's real interesting. In other words, I want to be real, real wealthy. Oh, so I can give all this, do all this, give all this to ministry. Can I show you an interesting verse? 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you haven't been offended already, this ought to do it. <laughs> Look at verse 9 of 1 Timothy 6. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Now, this doesn't say if you want to provide for your family. It doesn't say if you want to build a business. It doesn't say if you want to be excellent at what you do. It doesn't say that. It says, but those who want to get rich. You say, well, you know, that's kind of general. Well, he specifies it in verse 10, for the love of money. See, it's just not wanting to get rich. It's, it's that you love it. It's a passion. It, it, You've got to have money to make it. Uh, it was Joe Lewis, the great boxer, who said, he said, I don't love money, but it quiets my nerves. <laughs> well, you know, I think it quiets my nerves, too. When you have it, your nerves are quieted. When you don't have it, you get a little anxious. So you've got to have money to make it. You've got to have money to pay the bills, right? But there's a difference between wanting to provide and loving money, and that's the reason that you want to get rich. You love money. Jesus says you can't love God and Mammon, which is money. See, this is all heart stuff. It's all down deep. It's all in here. Um, nothing wrong with wanting to provide. Nothing wrong with working hard. Now, you, you should be doing that. And, and when you use those biblical principles and when you give, God often blesses those with more that can be trusted because their hearts don't belong to money. Their hearts belong to him. But if you start out loving money more than you start more than you love him, you got a problem. And I'll tell you something: if you get the money, it'll destroy you. Your life will fall apart. So James says this about wrong prayers: you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, he says. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Now here, what he's doing here, he's saying, he's saying that wrong prayers basically 
stem all the way back. What's the source? It's a wrong heart. So then he mentions in verse 4, you can have a wrong friendship. You can have a wrong kinship. You can love the world. You say, what's the world? It's that which is antithetical and opposed to God. Is it 1 John 5? Flip over there if you would. Just swing over there to the right. Is it 1 John 5? No, it's 1 John 2. If any man loves, uh, love not the world. That doesn't sound right to me. 2.15, thank you. Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. See, love for Christ is central. Love for Christ is first. So if you love the world and the stuff that's in the world, it's a heart issue. See, this, 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 goes down, this goes down to the heart. What is the source? The source is always the heart. So that's why Proverbs says, guard your heart, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. Uh, when the heart is wrong, the, um, the attractions are going to be wrong. The friendships are going to be wrong. The Bible says that bad company corrupts good morals. So this is, this, this is the, so why do we have shootings? Why do we have conflicts? Why do we have quarrels? It all comes back to the heart. James really lays it out for us. Um, there's a great illustration of this. You, you know, uh, I always lived in California. In 1986, we moved to Arkansas. And it was shortly after that I was in Arkansas that I became familiar with, uh, with a certain couple. I had, uh, I mean, I'd heard of them, but I wasn't real familiar with them. And they were, uh, um, he, the husband had a very, very powerful and significant political position. And it, it was pretty clear that he was extremely ambitious. But, uh, interestingly enough, his wife was even more ambitious than he was. I mean, if anyone was driven, it was her. Now, this couple were, um, were religious. They liked to be viewed as religious. They liked to be seen at religious events. But what was interesting was when you really got up close, whenever a biblical issue came up, they were vociferously opposed to biblical truth and the biblical issues. They, um, they, they like to look religious, but boy, did they ever fight truth. Did they ever fight biblical truth? Um, they were quite a team. They, they were quite a tandem. They, um, they had a lot of power, and they wanted more. They, um, the thing, interestingly enough, what, what eventually got them in trouble was they got involved in a land deal. And uh, by now you know who, who I'm speaking of. Uh, by now you've figured out I'm speaking of Ahab and Jezebel. So why don't you turn back with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. 
Whenever I've used illustration, I've, 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 people have sent me notes, and some people get upset. And it always amazes me, because they, they always think I'm, I'm talking about Ahab and Jezebel in, in the Old Testament. And for some reason, for some reason, they think I'm talking, they thought I was talking about a contemporary couple in American politics. And they always think it's the same couple. I don't get that. Except to say, if the shoe fits, wear it. First Kings uh, chapter, we're going to 21. Now we should say this about Ahab and Jezebel, and I am talking about Ahab and Jezebel, and everything that I said is true of Ahab and Jezebel, everything. Just read from about First Kings 16 or 18 on to the rest of the book. Uh, by the way, Ahab and Jezebel, three things about them. They were Baal worshipers. She was a Baal worshiper. Her father's name was Eth Baal, which means with Baal. Uh, she was not from Israel. She was from the north. Ahab rejected the God of Israel, married her, and became a Baal worshiper. Uh, Baal worshipers hold to three things. Number one, they're pro-choice. You should understand that about Baal worship. Because part of Baal worship, they had a god that they would call um, Baal Moloch, and they would have their festivals just on the south, uh, east, south, no, southwest valley of Hinnon there in, outside of Jerusalem. And they would set up this big brass god, like a Buddha, hollow out his back. And before their festivals, they would, a couple days before, these pre Baal priests would. Um, put a fire back there and stoke it. And this Baal Moloch, God was sitting there with these huge hands. And as the drums were playing and people were all revved up and just out of their minds, to show your allegiance to Baal Moloch, the people of Israel would take their firstborn baby sons and throw them into the hands of that white-hot God. And your baby would be immolated. They believed you had that choice. So they were pro-choice. They were also um, pro-environment. When the first time uh, Elijah showed up, he went to Ahab and Jezebel, and he said to them, he said, it will not rain until God says it will rain. Now the reason he said that is that they taught that Baal controlled the environment. Baal controls uh, the rain, the agricultural cycles. Baal controls global warming. And none of that is true. Elijah says, Yahweh controls it. And to prove it to you, it's not going to rain until Yahweh says it's going to rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. But see, they worship Baal, they worship the environment. Third thing, they were, uh, were pro-militant homosexual. The prophets of uh, Baal... Uh, set at the table of Ahab and Jezebel. When they had their, their worship services in Israel, when they were in Baal worship, uh, there were all these stories about Baal that were all sexual in nature. For instance, Baal's three wives were his three sisters. Uh, Baal uh, uh, castrated his own father and killed his father. 
These are, and, and we can't really go much further than that. They were just unbelievably wretched in their immorality. And they were all sexual. Well, when they would have their worship services, they had male prostitutes. They had male prostitutes. They had sodomite prostitutes, male prostitutes, and female prostitutes in order to reenact the Baal stories. And they would do it in public. And if you raised an objection to that, you were called hateful and intolerant. Interesting, isn't it? There's nothing new under the sun. Same stuff, we just call it by different names. I want to show you how this works in the life, what we've been talking about in... um, what is the source? What's going on here? What do you got? You got wrong hearts. You got wrong actions. You got wrong prayers. You got wrong. I want to, I want to show you out of the life of Ahab and Jezebel. First Kings 21. A lot of you guys know this story. So this is the king and the queen. They're the big shots. You know, they're above the law. They can do anything they want. Now, it came out after these things that Naboth, this Jezreelite, had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab, the king, spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house. I'll give you a better vineyard than it in its place. Uh, If you like, I'll give you the price of it in money. Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my father. You just don't do that. So Abraham came in, uh, Abraham, Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth, the Jezreelite, had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. Uh, Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? So he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and I said, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in his place. But he said to me, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now watch this. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people. And seat two worthless men before him, and let them testify against him, saying, You curse God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. Um, and that's what happened. So they set up a trial with false accusations and false witnesses. Um, and if you look at verse 13, the two worthless men came in, set before him, and the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth, before the people saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. Did that happen? No. But see, when you want something, when you really want something, a ruthless pleasure, you'll do anything to get it. Because from a wrong heart comes wrong actions, even murder. Uh, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. 
When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession. I love verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Oh, and by the way, verse 23, here's what's going to happen to Jezebel. Of Jezebel also the Lord has spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. Look at verse 25. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. Now, you know what's interesting about this? Ahab knew about the one true God. He knew all about the one true God. But he got influenced. He loved the world. He, he had friendship with the world. What, verse 25, what a wuss this sucker is. Look at this. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel his wife incited him. Oh, this guy's the, the king, this guy. What do you mean he's the king? He's not the king. The sucker's a, he's a little wuss. He didn't run that kingdom. She runs the kingdom. Because she runs him. It's a perversion of God's natural plan for the family. God has called men to lead their homes. God has called men to give spiritual direction. Is any of this making sense? I feel like I'm just sort of raving tonight. But what I'm trying to do is illustrate for you, there's a very, there's a very real story that shows in actuality what happened in James chapter 4. What's being described to us. You've got, you got a wrong heart, and if we're not careful, and if it's not just, there's going to be wrong actions. Now, note the solution, because this is, this is the heart condition, all right? And, and, and we got to watch ourselves, even after we come to know Christ. I want you to notice the cure, because there is a cure, and, and, and there is an antidote here in James. Um, go back to James 4, if you would, here, and, and, and note what he says. He's, he's going to start giving the antidote. And it begins, it actually begins in verse 5. But to get verse 5, you've got to hook it with verse 6. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. You say, what does that mean? Well, look at verse 6. Well, he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, the proud spirit, the proud spirit is, as we saw last week, is the spirit that was uh, uh, exemplified in, in, in Satan's whole story. He wasn't content with who he was and with what he had been given, and he did violence in his own heart and wanted to be equal with God. Now, now watch what the antidote is. The antidote to our hearts, because this is all in our hearts, guys. 
and, and obviously, we're not going to go out and get guns and start firing them. But what about quarrels? And what about arguments? And what about... You know, somebody in here, somebody, is a real pain in the butt to live with. And I don't know who you are. But I'd like you to stand. <laughs> No. We'll wait. If you came in a bus, they'll wait. I've always wanted to say that, but some guys are just hard to live with. I, I, I mean, real hard. Some guys are real difficult to live with. Maybe that's you. How much joy does your wife have? Does she feel um, built up by you, or does she feel torn down? You encourage her? Oh, I, uh, <clears throat> I love her. Well, great. Howard Hendricks tells an unbelievable story about this couple that comes in for counseling. I mean, I heard this from him 30 years ago. And they come in for counseling. And, you know, they've been married 25 years or so. And they sit down, and immediately the lady starts telling her story, and she's weeping, and he's trying to get the ball. And she says, my, my husband doesn't love me. He never tells me that he loves me. He never tells me that he loves me. And she's just weeping. I and mean, the guy's just kind of sitting there, got his arms crossed, you know. He, doesn't love, he never tells me. He never tells me that he loves me. And Henry looks over at the guy and he says, is that true? And the guy looks at Henrix and he said, I told her on the day that we got married that I loved her. And until I revoke it, it's still in force. <laughs> now that's a guy that's hard to live with. <laughs> you need to remind her it's still in force. I mean, honestly, guys, there are some Christian guys that are, that are just hell on earth to live with because they're cantankerous, they're critical, they're always tearing down. What kind of joy is in your home? The reason I'm getting into this is that a few years ago, in fact, it's, it was more than a few. It was when we used to meet upstairs. I remember telling a story about a guy that I'm aware of. And in a real solid church, this guy, this guy spends a lot of time doing ministry stuff. He had a wife, got a lot of kids. His kids were real small. And uh, his wife, was just absolutely beat up, was disheartened. And I just watched this. I just watched, and I watched, and I watched, and I watched. And, and I won't go into circumstances, but, but I knew what was going on inside that house. Yeah, I mean, he never would, never would raise his hand, but it was with his tongue that James talked about. Uh, 
It got so bad that about 18 months ago, she was going to file for divorce, and she doesn't believe in divorce. She didn't believe. She couldn't take it anymore. And now it had been turned on the kids. And nobody could talk to this guy. Nobody. Nobody could get through to him. Well, something happened to this guy. Um, someone went to him who was close to him and basically talked to him and hit him in the face with a two-by-four. And just straight up told him what was going on and where he was and how difficult he was to live with and how displeasing this was to God and that he was going to lose his kids. The day they got out of that house, it was over. And I'll tell you what's really interesting. About a year ago, his wife indicated that this guy had changed. And she was almost afraid to say it because it had only been a few weeks. But a month went by and two months went by and he wasn't ripping her apart and always criticizing her and always this and that and all okay. And then four months and then five months. It's been a year. It's been a year. She was ready to walk out a year ago. And this family is doing absolutely great. Now, let me tell you what happened to this guy. I want you to note verse 7. Here's what he did. When he was confronted, let me tell you what this guy did. He, he, he took it. He listened. He didn't get proud. He didn't reject the friend that came to him. To his credit, he took it. He didn't like it, but he listened. And then what he did was verse 7. It says, submit therefore to God. Instead of denying it, instead of digging in, instead of saying it's not true, you don't know what she's done, he submitted, he bowed before God. This family is in absolute inner turmoil. What does he do? He bows before God. Then catch this. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do you resist the devil? The devil's proud. When you're proud, you're being influenced as Ahab was influenced by Jezebel. So he submits to God. Notice verse 8. The first thing he does, he submits to God. Here's the second thing. He draws near to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. That's exactly what happened to this guy. In brokenness, in tears... On more than one occasion, he went to his wife and confessed the poison in his heart. It was not only in his heart towards her, it was to his parents. This went real deep, and it went way back. But instead of sloughing it off, you know what he did? He dealt with it. He acknowledged it. He cleansed his heart. He confessed it to Christ. He confessed it to her. He got it out of his system. And what happened? Well, he drew near to God, and then God drew near to him. 
And then note verse 10. This sums it up. He humbled himself. Humble yourselves as in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, you know what's interesting to me? Here's what's interesting to me. Is, is the newfound respect that his kids have towards him? Is the respect and the way that his wife speaks about him? It's, it's, it's really amazing. And I'll tell you what. It, it's a work of the Holy Spirit that took place down deep in this guy's heart. And I'm going to tell you something. This guy's tough. There's a good side to toughness. This, this guy was a great ball player because he's tough. He'd play through injuries because he was tough. He's been through a lot of adversity, and he hangs in there because he's tough. But there is a time to be broken and tender before God and to have your heart broken and to confess what's in your heart. He humbled himself. And now what's being, what's just fascinating to me is that that family is in the process of being healed. And, and, and quite frankly, as he has humbled himself, those with whom he lived and had the least respect, now they're the ones that have the most respect. He humbled himself, and he's been exalted. So we can point to the culture and to this politician and this and this and this guy and this left-wing guy, but I'm going to tell you something, guys. It's here. When a certain guy was in the White House, I wasn't real hot about it. And I really didn't like him. But I'll tell you this. My biggest problem is not who's in the White House. My biggest problem is who lives in the Blue House. And that's me. That's my biggest problem. What's the solution to the quarrels and the difficult? You humble yourself. You cleanse your heart. You draw near to him. He draws near to you. And may I say one of the things we close from the book of James? Let's not just be hearers. Let's be doers. That's how things get fixed in a family and in a nation and in a university. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Lord. <clears throat> we all know our own hearts. We are grateful for grace, and we're grateful for forgiveness, and we're grateful for mercy, but we have to come. And we have to draw near, and we have to yield, and we have to submit our hearts and acknowledge the sin that's in our lives. We're so quick to point a finger. I know I am. Sometimes I'm so quick to assume that I know what's in somebody else's heart. And I don't even know what's in my heart. So we bow before you who knows the hearts of all men. And we examine ourselves. And if there's anything there that the Spirit of God brings up, we submit to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.